0: Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. You may recognize the name the Concord Coalition. They're a fantastic national think tank that focuses on budget policy, and you've heard some of their experts on some of our other shows. And it turns out they have their own podcast and radio show called Facing the Future. So today, they turned the tables on us. They had me and Paul Hodes, my co-host, on their show, to talk about congressional dysfunction, how messed up things have gotten, and whether we can make them any better. So we wanted to bring it to you here on Beyond Politics. You can also find Facing the Future on your podcast listening platform of choice, and you can check them out on WKXL every week. So we'll jump in here with their executive director, Bob Bixby, and their policy director, Tori Gorman, and me and Paul.
1: Paul, Matt, and Tori, welcome to Facing the Future. You know, um, we spent a lot of time on this show looking at the details of various legislative proposals, and we certainly plan to keep doing that. But in this segment, I wanted to take, you know, a broader look at political dysfunction and and take advantage of your collective wisdom and experience on the Hill to look at, you know, whether Congress is becoming more or or less dysfunctional. Uh, I mean, there seems to be some evidence on both sides. Every year, We come right up to the brink and have a threat of a shutdown on appropriations bills because I can't pass them on time. Sometimes they don't pass any of them on time. Uh, It seems like we're having repeated uh, showdowns over the the debt limit and whether there's going to be a a default. And it's very hard to get a good discussion going, a good rational, uh, even bipartisan discussion going on a lot of key topics like climate change or immigration reform or tax reform. Uh, everything seems to fall into political silos, and yet one could argue on the other side uh, that you know they are getting things done. They just passed a, a huge infrastructure bill with bipartisan support, and last year they acted swiftly and aggressively and in a bipartisan way on uh, COVID relief. So you know maybe Congress is uh, is actually accomplishing a lot. So Paul, let me start with you as a as a former member of Congress. Is this all just sort of inevitable, ugly, but necessary sausage making? Uh, Or are there larger systemic or societal forces at at, at play here? Uh,
2: Yes and no. Um, The the answer is that it's certainly uglier than it was when I was uh, in in serving in Congress. Um, I left in 2011, um, and and things were were challenging, and uh, the parties um, were 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 at odds. But in two thousand eleven, Democrats um, uh, at that point had had uh, four years of a significant majority, uh, and uh, two years with a Democratic president to get things done. And remember, we passed uh, Obamacare with zero Republican support, um, couldn't get anybody. Things have certainly gotten uglier since then. Um, So from a systemic standpoint, um, yes, things have gotten done uh, for Democrats recently with a slim majority and a little bit of support from Republicans. So that supports the argument that, well, things are actually getting done. On the other hand, I just um, came back from a visit to D.C. and visited the hallowed halls where I used to meander my way down to the floor and talked with a number of my former colleagues. And there is doom, gloom, and despair um, on the at least the Democratic side of the aisle about the way it feels, their ability to communicate with the other party about anything. And um, looking forward, there's not a lot of of, uh, sunny optimism about the future. And overarching this entire question is the challenge to democracy that is unprecedented, that we face um, from the former president, um, his acolytes, his followers, what happened on January 6th, the way the Republicans have basically dismissed that as uh, as a uh, tourist event. And the threat to the demo- to democracy I think, um, and the threat to our system of voting really hangs over this whole question um, and suggests that we are in a period of deep regressive uh, dysfunction. Um, and uh, it's not going to end anytime soon and it's not going to be pretty.
1: You actually anticipated a question of, of uh, you know, how your former colleagues are uh, thinking about this. I mean, are there other, other members, I know other members are in touch quite a bit. I mean, is that a subject that, that comes up about how things might be reformed or, or rescued, I guess is a better way to put it.
2: During with my conversations, uh, my recent conversations with a number of members of the House, Nobody was talking about how things could be made better. It was all, frankly, doom and gloom and despair about how bad things are, except for um, uh, uh, Congressman uh, John Sarbanes, who was holding out hope that um, uh, the that some form of voting rights could actually pass. He was the bright spot in an otherwise fairly dark assessment um, he was. Uh, he was. He was hopeful. He was. He was uh, not sunny, but mildly hopeful, and and that was good to hear because I think uh, both Matt Robeson and I have talked frequently about uh, the overarching issue of what's happening with our electoral system and the dysfunction um, fr- in our democracy from the challenge of authoritarianism.
1: You know, uh, Matt and Tory, um, you've you both worked in the trenches uh, as congressional staffers on both sides of the aisle, and I'm just wondering, from the from the congressional staff position, uh, have you noticed a, a, a change?
0: I mean, I'll just say in the, that- in,
1: in the way things work, the way things come together or don't come together.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think. In speaking with some of my former colleagues, I think time it's definitely true that there's been a change, and the people who are still on the the hill, notice it. There was a time earlier in, in my career and Tori's career where she and I, despite working on for different political parties, probably would have been able to get on the phone behind the scenes once the cameras were off from our bosses and say, All right. How are we gonna? How are we gonna work this out? And in fact, that's what I used to do when I was working for Paul. And the way that we got the Northern Border Development Commission passed was I had a whole bunch of Republican colleagues. Believe me, these were my best assets and my best allies. We still talk all the time. We are we are legitimately friends, and that helped. It made a difference. I know people bemoan the fact that people don't go out for beers anymore. I'm not so convinced that that's sort of the dominant factor of the beer index, right? Mm-hmm. Like, but. On the other hand, there was an ability to get things done. I I had Bernie Sanders, former chief of staff on the Beyond Politics show. People can check that out in the Beyond Politics podcast feed. And, you know, she was talking about that. She says that for her, now that she's off the hill, the key for getting an agenda item done is it's very Zen. It's don't get noticed because as soon as you're on the partisan warfare radar, you're sunk. If you're if you're going to have an issue that falls below that radar, you can still behind the scenes work it out. And there are people like Tory who you know might be in a different political party, but we're all professionals. We basically have the same set of values in, in a lot of core ways, and we can work together. Mm-hmm. But once the lights are on and 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 once the the swords are out, you, you're sunk.
3: Mm-hmm. I just uh, just to add to what Matt was saying, I think you know when I he and I were both uh, on staff. Um, The general objective was to solve problems. I mean, that's why everybody comes to Washington. That's why members of Congress come to Washington. That's why staff comes to Washington. They want to help solve problems. And I think what's surprising to me is how much, I mean, the, the, the institution has always been partisan, right? That, that's that's not a surprise. What's been surprising to me is how much bipartisanship has been punished. I mean, before we used to, you know, hold it up as, as sort of this u- your unique exemplary nirvana. It's like, oh, we have a bicameral bipartisan piece of legislation. Quick, 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 let's go to the floor, Um but now, I mean, just looking at what happened with the infrastructure bill, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and the fact that you had, what, 13, 16 Senate Republicans who voted for that piece of legislation, and now, you know, there are Republicans in the House who are saying that those members should be penalized. Um, so I just, that has been shocking to me. I mean, I'm not shocked by the politics. I'm just shocked by the fact that, that there's now retribution, if you will, for bipartisanship, and that is shocking.
0: And actually, if I could counter build on your build, I mean, first of all, <laughs> if, if we had figured out what Tory had just said as Democrats a few years ago, we would have sent Barack Obama on a hugging tour, right? Remember when he destroyed Chris Christie's political career yeah. by hugging him during Superstorm Sandy? He should have just hugged Donald Trump. That would have solved all of America's problems. But mm-hmm. you know, the other kind of insidious thing that's happened, and I, I'm sorry if this is a little bit in the weeds, but I think it matters. I, I really do. We used to have as part of the money the annual money spending process the appropriations process we used to have earmarks right little pieces where each member would get a little a little bit of money to sort of say to, in the appropriations process if you're going to spend money in my district spend it here And first of all I think that's profoundly democratic because I mean as a Republican I would prefer that an elected, Democratic representative or a Republican representative, I mean, small small D Democratic, get a say in where money is spent, not a bureaucrat at a federal agency. Okay. But the other thing that used to happen was, behind the scenes, there were a lot of negotiations. My first job on Capitol Hill was for the Appropriations Committee. And believe me, there was a lot of behind the scenes work going on at the staff level, where we would kind of work these things out, do a lot of horse trading, and it would help to get the members of Congress on board That we had kind of done all of that work to give everyone an incentive to have hands in in the process and say, all right, I have skin in the game. I want this to pass. And you saw a lot more bills passing. You no longer see that because we've lost that tool. And it's like a little piece of bipartisanship that's that's just gone.
2: That's why I spent so much time battling against earmarks uh, on the grounds that fiscal responsibility required us to do everything without the earmarks. Well, <laughs> thanks for that, Hodes. <laughs> Wait a second, you were my chief of staff. What? Don't, don't no, I was blame on the me. other side of
0: that one, man. But you know, look, when the you're a staffer, when the boss wants to do something, you you salute. Was uh, yeah,
1: yes. Well, um, the, uh, the 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 truth comes out. Uh, looking at uh, Torio, uh, you might want to weigh in there on this. But you know, one of the things that uh, is getting a lot of attention now. In regarding why things can't get done is the Senate filibuster. So looking at the other body, what, what, what are your thoughts, Paul? I know you, you didn't serve in the Senate, but I mean, this is a, a perpetual frustration of House members is we can pass whatever we want to. We send it over to the Senate, mm-hmm. nothing happens. And that's, you know, there's just a, a, a rising tide of um, criticism of the Senate filibuster. Um, uh, do you support ideas for reforming it or even outright eliminating
2: it? I support reform for the filibuster. It started as a racist tool. It is an anachronism. It's uh, even even there. there's I, I don't see any good reason at this point to keep it in its current form. And I think it really does need reform. And I say that with due regard for institutional precedent. It's just a rule, people. It's not a law. It's just a rule. And it really needs to be uh, needs to be changed. And it's the sooner the better, in my view.
3: Oh, I'm going to. Disagree. <laughs> um, I guess my objection, my concern with the filibuster is not that it exists. I mean that the the role with the, the filibuster is to try and encourage, you know, cooperation and bipartisanship and p- passing legislation because bipartisan legislation is the only durable legislation. If we could muscle through legislation through single party rule in both chambers, we'd either get nothing done or we'd get legislation. Uh, that would that wouldn't last very long because the next time one party controlled both chambers, they'd change everything. So I, I think the filibuster is necessary. What I, and I think it produces good outcomes when it's used the way it's intended. The filibuster it was intended as a way, I mean right now there is no rule in the Senate that ends debate. Right now the Senate, you know, every senator has the right to debate something until they run out of air. Um, and they can amend something until they run out of ideas. So they needed some sort of mechanism to say, okay, we're done debating this piece of legislation and we're ready to move to a vote on final passage. And and I think that serves a purpose. But the problem right now is the filibuster isn't being used uh, to, to bring people together to reach consensus on legislation so that they can move to final passage. Right now, it's being used to halt any kind of progress whatsoever. And it's not it's not resulting in cooperation and negotiation. It's just putting a stop to everything and the, that the, the response to to the, the 60 vote hurdle has been to stop talking to each other in the Senate, and that is a problem. You know, they're they're using it to stop an agenda to prevent any kind of problem solving. I mean, on one hand, the minority party is saying, we don't want legislation to go forward. But on the other hand, the majority party is saying, we're not willing to talk to you about any kind of ideas you might have for this legislation. So I think both parties are behaving irresponsibly when it comes to to, to the filibuster. Um, I still think it, 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 it needs to exist <laughs> But we've just got to change people's mindset. I mean, I think voters need to be more more responsible in sending members to Congress that are really interested in solving problems and working across the aisle and and not engaging and and perpetuating this this partisan warfare.
0: But Just to call back to a point you made on the Great Ideas Show, and and Dory had a really blockbuster outstanding appearance on The Great Ideas Show. Check that out wherever you get your podcast. It was a wonderful explanation of how reconciliation works. And you said, much as you said today, you know, look, we need bipartisan legislation. We need durable legislation. And in the absence of being able to do that, and in the presence of the filibuster, the backstop by default has become reconciliation as a as a workaround and you pointed out on that show no that's a terrible idea it's a terrible workaround because you end up with kind of these long shots squirming around the rules approaches that that make for bad policy mm-hmm. and you've seen that play out in the affordable care act where we had all these contortions to try and make it work under reconciliation and we've we've spent a decade kind of dodging it getting repealed and trying to fix all of the flaws in the original legislation. And so the outcome is totally bad. So I, in a way, I think we're kind of landing in the same place, which is the filibuster as it currently exists is leading to lots of bad stuff. And there probably needs to be some change. Ultimately, though, I think Tory is right. Inside dynamics respond to outside political pressures. And until the outside politics stops incentivizing both parties to be as extreme as possible and to stand in the way of everything that the other party wants to do, we're not going to see any change inside the chambers.
3: Right, I just now, don't think we should change outside, the- I was going to say, I just don't I, think we I
0: should- I wanted to get talk about, move on
1: to a, a slightly <laughs> different subject <laughs> uh, since we're uh, running out of time for this segment because Matt, you mentioned outside influences and uh, you know, I can think of two. Uh, and Paul, uh, feel free to weigh in on these. Um, you know, one is the role of money in politics, because people are running around having to raise so much money for campaigns. And the way you raise money is to be incendiary about things that, that gets more of a return. The, the, the flip side of that is that when you do, you know, you, you've said these horrible things about uh, the other side, how do you get back to Washington and try to work with them? That's one thing. I don't know whether that's a thing or not. I mean, you can you can tell me since you've both been involved in, in campaigns. The other one is social media, which has become, you know, uh, much more of a driving force. Certainly it didn't exist when the Concord Coalition started. And I just wonder if that. It lends itself to a more truncated partisan kind of a debate and gets in the way of getting things done.
2: Um m- Look, my perspective is that uh, money in politics has been a-, a pretty old saw and a pretty accurate saw for a long time. Um, the way we raise money um, does not necessarily incentivize principled stands on issues or uh, comedy and uh, conciliatory behavior when you're working with the other side. I think the impact of social media, Um, especially over the past decade, is much greater um, and much more insidious. Um, While it has democratized the debate, it's given everybody a voice and amplified extreme voices and given a voice to the extremes in our political system that otherwise never had the means to really be out there in the public square. And that has led uh, folks in both parties to cater Uh, to the extremes uh, of, of their constituencies. And I don't think it's helped our political system.
0: That's it for Beyond Politics. Since you've reached the end of this episode, hopefully you liked what you've been listening to. So if you want to help out this kind of content, one thing you can do that would really help out facing the future and Beyond Politics is Go to whatever podcast listening platform you like and leave a rating and review, both for Facing the Future, you can find them, and for Beyond Politics. Those ratings and reviews, we like the five-star kind, really do help listeners find our content. It helps us grow these shows and bring them to a wider audience, and we appreciate it. Thanks so much.